Just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 25 through 35. If you want to go ahead and find your way there, it should be in the Bible app as well if you're using that. Um, and it's also on our website if you happen to be uh, watching on our website. Um, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Charles Bradlaugh was an outstanding atheist in England. Down in one of the slums of London was a minister by the name of Hugh Price Hughes. All of London was aware of miracles of grace accomplished at his mission. Charles Bradlaugh challenged Mr. Hughes to debate with him the validity of the claims of Christianity. London was greatly interested. What would Mr. Hughes do? He immediately accepted the challenge, and in doing so, he added a challenge of his own. Hughes said, I propose to you that we each bring, bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. If you cannot bring 100, Mr. Bradlaugh, to match my 100, I will be satisfied if you will bring 50 men and women who will stand and testify that they've been lifted up from the lives of shame by the influence of your teachings. If you cannot bring 50, then bring 20 people who will say, as my hundred will, that they have a great joy and life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. If you cannot bring 20, I will be satisfied if you bring 10. Nay, Mr. Bradlaugh, I challenge you to bring one, just one man or woman who will make such a testimony regarding the uplifting of your atheistic teachings. Again, London was stirred. What would Mr. Bradlaugh do? In answer, Charles Bradlaugh, with great discomfiture and chagrin, publicly withdrew his challenge for the debate. This morning, in our final message on the church, I want to ask this question. So what? So what? And what I mean by that is when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ and discipleship, what difference does it really make in our life? Do you ever come to church or you go to a Bible study or a conference or whatever it might be and you fill your brain with all of this great information and what do you do with that great information? I think many times in church we are guilty of this. We fill our brains with intellect, sometimes through books, sometimes through uh, other means, sometimes through the proclamation of the word, but then it does not make a difference in our life. And so I want to ask you, so what this morning? We come to church, we learn, we have Bible study, we learn, we pray, we learn, but what do we do with that? I have this thing that I do every time I preach when I sit down and prepare my sermon, I ask that question. I ask that question, so what? What difference is this passage of scripture going to make? What does this mean to the average person all of these years later? So what? I don't know if you've ever been to a conference or something or you heard a great sermon and you get fired up and you get motivated and, and we're ready to we're ready to charge hell with a water pistol right we're so fired up we're, we're ready to go i'm going to go out i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and, and i'm going to witness and i'm going to share the gospel with everybody i see i'm i'm ready to go and, and we're all fired up and the question is what do we do with that most of us might know where the Great Commission is located in Scripture. We've looked at it several times recently, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And as we read this passage of Scripture, we notice a lot of things that are, that are in that passage of Scripture. We notice that, that there's a mandate that's given to us. 
What is the mandate that's given to us? The mandate in Matthew 28, 18-20 is that we make disciples. That we make disciples, that's the mandate. And our question has to be, is that mandate valid to us today? Well, of course it's valid to us today. And what we have is this, this command, this mandate, make disciples. And it's linked to three participles, right? The participles are they are going, baptizing, and teaching. And so what Jesus is saying is, is as you're going, you make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. So here's the thing. We hopefully gain all this knowledge in our Christian life. And we learn all of this information. And the question is, what do we do with that? And, and it shouldn't be, the question should not be, um, do I take this message that, that I've had? Do I take this message to the lost? But the question should be always, what is stopping me from taking this message to the lost? What is keeping me from it? And many times people are looking for a reason to go, right? And, and so we say, well, what's, what's my reason to go and, and share the gospel with my neighbor or my coworker or whoever it might be? But we should be looking for a reason to go. We should be looking for the reason of why we're staying. Why aren't we going? Do you realize that there's 1.6 billion people, billion with a B, in the world today that have still never even heard the name of Jesus? But not only does Jesus give this mandate, right? But he also gives a promise. And what's the promise? He tells us what the promise is. I will be with you always. Is that promise valid to us today? Yes. Look, he says, he will be with us always, which is constant. He's constantly with us. And he also says, until the end of the age, which is continually. He's constantly with us, and he will always be with us. And so the mandate and the promise are valid. So we can say that Jesus is commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations, and he's going to be with us always until the day that he comes back again. And here's what's important to remember about all this. this. This promise and this mandate come after Jesus has already laid down his life to save us. So how do we apply our salvation to our lives? How do we do that? We do exactly what Jesus said. We make disciples. But here's what's very important. In fact, I think it may be one of the hardest things about discipleship that Jesus has ever said, and it's the biggest struggle that anybody that ever wants to make a disciple has, and anyone that actually wants to follow Christ has. We're going to read these verses here in a minute, but Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Doesn't say might not. Doesn't say probably won't be. It says you cannot be my disciple. But what does that even mean? Does that mean, oh, we're going to, uh, Jesus is saying we're going to have some hard times in our life. And we hear that kind of language all the time, right? Well, it's my cross to bear. And we act like it's just like, oh, I'm going through a hard time. I got to bear my cross. And we think it's just this difficult time that we're going through. However, bearing your cross means so much more. It means that you go to Golgotha. It means that you die with Christ. It means that you die to those old attitudes that you have and those old desires that you have and those old associations that you have and that old jealousy and that old anger and that old pride and that old selfishness and that old gossip and that old whatever. We could go on and on and on about what we are to die to. It means you die to it. Now let let me show you something that often happens in our Christian life and in churches all the time. We get excited 
we get fired up for various reasons, whether it's that conference we went to, whether it's that, that sermon that we heard, whether it's something, you know, we watched on YouTube or whatever, and we get all excited, and this is what happens, right? We think that we got some new tricks. I got new tricks I'm going to try out. This happens uh, a lot with, with uh, evangelism techniques. So, so uh, we'll, we'll go over evangelism technique, and we think, well, this is a never-fail trick I got in my book. We're going to try it out. And we go and use our trick and it doesn't work like we thought it would, right? So we give up. We go right back to the person we were before. And that's not discipleship. That's not what Christ has called us to, biblically. What he has called us to is to come and die. That's what he calls us to. to. To make a disciple, we ask people to come and die to their old self. That's not real popular, right? Hey, come and die to your old self. Come and die to your old destructive behaviors. Come and live for Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. The life of a disciple is a life that's one of obedience. It is worthless to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ with our tongue, but to be disobedient with our life. And here's where it gets serious. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? We just had this conversation in our Sunday school that, that so often people will say, well, well, yeah, I'm, I know Jesus. I'm, I'm saved. I'm a follower of Jesus. But their life doesn't bear that out. And what I want to do is that I want to expand out on that idea. Because here's what I think so often happens in churches today. People hear this message or they hear a message like it. And they're like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. But they forget something that's crucial. And so I want us to look at this passage of scripture in Luke 14. Verses 25 through 35. So I'd ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read Luke 14, 25 through 35. You're reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against them with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that you use it to penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning. That it would root deep in our hearts. That we would truly ask ourselves, are we a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we really his disciples? Penetrate our hearts with that word. And Lord, we also want to 
pause for just a moment here and pray for our community. Lord, we understand that four people in Washington just went into eternity a few days ago. May it cause us to stop and think. What is my life saying? What is my life proclaiming? Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? Oh Lord, we lift up those families to you. We pray that you would give them peace that only you can give. I don't know them. I don't know whether they know Christ as their Savior or not. But God, I know this. There are no mistakes. And everything is done to bring you glory. So Lord, may we pause and ask, how will we glorify you in and through this? May you speak through your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Discipleship is the process by which we become a committed follower of Jesus Christ. What is clearly laid out in this passage and in other passages concerning discipleship is that we just uh, that we that we must count the cost. So I'm going to share with you two primary points. The first will be the commitment that is demanded. And the second will be count the cost. The first thing I want to talk to you about is this, the commitment. The commitment. Now look at this passage of scripture and in particular as we look at verses 26 and 27. Does it require anything to on our part to follow Jesus? What does it what does it take according to that scripture in order us in order for us to follow him? We we often look at this whole following Jesus thing, and a lot of times we think, well, it doesn't really require anything on me. I just, you know, I just gotta say this prayer and I'm good to go. <clears throat> it requires no time, it requires no money. It requires no sacrifice. It requires no commitment. But that's not the case, is it? That's not what we read in, the, in, in this Luke passage, Luke 14. The commitment, first of all, is to put Jesus above anybody or anything. Put Jesus above anybody or anything. I want you to see the picture here. There's these massive crowds of people. They're following Jesus everywhere he goes. And Jesus is thinking about the cross that he would soon be hanging on. He's thinking about the desperate needs of the world. And he knows the enormous sacrifice that it's going to take in order to reach the world. He has to have followers who are willing to sacrifice all they knew for the message of salvation. He couldn't have second best. He could not accept any other place in their life other than first place. And he also needed to make it clear what the commitment was going to be. Do you think the typical person, the typical Christian in America today takes discipleship seriously? That's part of the problem. We don't take it seriously. We spend all of this time and all of this money to get people to come to our church, and we miss the point. The point is there's a commitment that's required. But here's what we often do, right? It's like, you know what a bait and switch is, right? Churches are so often a bait and switch. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with having big events. We do. We do some big events. 
But what happens is we have this big event and we, we do these great things and, and uh, have all this great stuff and good food and we chow down on some food and we say, oh, by the way, you need Jesus. Come get this stuff. Oh, and you need Jesus. It's this bait and switch. There's no call to commitment in that. Where's the call to commitment? We can't miss what Jesus said in verses 26 and 27. Do you see it? What does Christ have to come before? What does he say? He must come first, even before our family, even before ourselves. Christ was not saying that we must necessarily hate ourselves and hate our family, but what he was saying is this. Christ must be first even before your friends, even before your family. He takes first place above everything else in your life. Christ must be before the family, even if your family opposes your decision to follow Christ. Christ takes first place. Everything is put behind Christ. Everything is put behind His mission. He doesn't want second best. He doesn't want this half-hearted commitment. He wants all of you. He wants the music you listen to, the shows that you watch, the things that you say, the attitude that you have. He wants it all. You see, Jesus comes and says to us, I want it all. I'll take all of that. I'll take every part of you. Now, I know this doesn't happen instantaneously. What happens is Jesus shows up, right? And he begins to claim different parts of your life. And you're doing something one day, and the next thing you know, Jesus says, oh, that's mine. And, and it's like, what? And then you're doing something else, and he says, no, that's mine. You see that bad attitude? That's mine. You see this? That's mine. But what happens is we want to give Jesus this mamby-pamby, wimpy Christianity that says to Jesus, well, Jesus... I'm just going to give you a little bit here. And I'm going to give you a little bit there. But there's certain things in my life I'm not going to give up. That you can't have. That's not discipleship. That's not total surrender. If you're not following the things of Christ, you're not a disciple. If you don't believe me, look at verse 27. Which I alluded to earlier. Jesus makes it clear to people. In Jesus' day, they knew exactly what it meant to take up your cross. They saw scores of criminals being uh, uh, bearing their cross to the place where they would soon be executed. They witnessed scores of crucifixions. Some people, even by the side of the roads that led out of the cities. The cross isn't, oh, I got to go through this hardship in my life. Oh, that means things are going to get tough in my life. Oh, that means that, that following Jesus is going to be hard. It is hard, but that's not what it's talking about. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. There was no one when Jesus said, you have to bear your cross. There was no one that thought, oh, boy, that's just, we're just going to have to do some hard stuff in our life. We even sing about it, right? Gladly my cross I bear. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It was an instrument of death. It wasn't something that you just carried around. <clears throat> the Jews considered the crucifixion the most horrible of deaths. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And so when Jesus says, and whoever does not bear his cross, he's not simply saying that this is something that you have to carry along with you. He's saying, whoever does not come to me and die, you die mentally. You die, you die to all your old self. You humble yourself to the point of death that Jesus is all that fills your thoughts every single day. That, that we put our will and our desires and our ambitions in everything that we want 
We say, Lord, I'm putting it to death. But we don't just put them to death. We replace our will, our desires, our ambitions, and all the stuff that we want to live for, we replace that with what Jesus wants us to live for. And we do his will. And we have his desires. And we have his ambitions all day long. And guess what? It doesn't, it doesn't just happen. You're not uh, sitting on the couch one day eating Cheetos. I don't know why you're always eating Cheetos on the couch, but you're not sitting on the couch one day, you know, eating something, and suddenly you're like, oh, you know what? I'm, just, I'm living for the Lord now. It doesn't work that way, right? You have to be active. It's hard to deny yourself, isn't it? Isn't it hard to deny what you want? Sometimes I want a bowl of ice cream at 10 o'clock at night. And that's hard to deny what you want. We got ice cream in the freezer. Why is it a problem? Well, because I've gained 20 pounds in a couple months. <laughs> it's hard to deny yourself. It's hard to die to self, to take up the cross to follow Christ. We have to act. We have to work. We have to get to it. We have to be diligent. We have to be consistent. We have to, we have to be enduring to die to self every single day. That when we wake up in the morning, our first thought will be, how will I die to self today? How hard are you working at it? What fills your mind every single day? What do you put into your mind every single day? There is a commitment. And that commitment is that you put Jesus Christ above anybody or anything. And that means that you have to be committed to rearranging your priorities. Sometimes even your whole life. That means that you have to be committed to changing and having your will be subservient to his will. How committed are you? How committed are you to Jesus Christ? Now let's look at verses 28 through 33. The overall theme in these verses is simple. Count the cost. <clears throat> count the cost. I'm going to share with you three ways that we must count the cost this morning. Hopefully, they speak to us and drive us to be people that count the cost. If you were going to work on a project where you had to figure out how much money you were going to need to get the project done, that's called counting the cost. You ever see these projects where somebody started and they ran out of money? So they get partway done and then they're out of money? It's because they didn't count the cost. That's the illustration that Jesus is giving, right? Count the cost. First, Jesus says this, can you afford to follow me? Can you afford to follow me? So in order to be his disciple, we say that there's a commitment. We see that there's this commitment that we have to have. And then Jesus says, hey, let me give you an illustration of what it's really like to be my disciple. Can you afford to follow me? I don't know if you got the illustration, but a builder does not just begin to build just like, oh, well, you know what? One day I'm just going to go out and, and, and I'm going to build me a new house. And I'm just going to go out and buy how much wood I think it's going to need and how much siding it's going to need. And, and all I'm just going to buy what I think it's going to need. I hope it works out. He has to decide whether he has enough money and resources to build what he's about to build. The person has to make sure that they can build it. 
or else they're not going to be able to finish the task and everybody's going to go by and be like, look at that goofball. He, he only spent, you know, he didn't, he didn't count the cost. He can't even finish what he, his project. And the point's clear. Before a person begins to follow Christ, Christ wants you to think about it. He wants you to understand there's a, there's a cost involved. He wants the person to be sure, to be absolutely sure that they can afford to follow through with the commitment that they're making. Do you have what it takes to build the tower of your life? Why does Jesus say this? I think I know why. Because a false profession of faith damages the kingdom of God. You see, we made it so easy, right? Say this prayer, walk the aisle, whatever, and, and bam, wham, bam, you're saved. And we all know these people. They say, oh, I'm a Christian. But you know they're not. And they only damage the kingdom of God. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they're not really a follower of Jesus. They walked an aisle one day, they said a prayer one day, but there's no evidence in their life that they're a believer. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is not really displayed in their life. And you know what a false profession does? It causes the world to mock and charge believers with being hypocritical. It causes prospective believers to turn sour. Like, I don't want any part of that. That person's no different than anybody else. It causes believers to be hampered and hindered in their ministry. Suddenly you can't do a ministry effectively because we have all these false professions of faith because people are in the church even that don't really know Jesus, but they say they do. It causes other believers to be discouraged. This is what happens time and time again. And the point is clear. Jesus is saying can you afford to follow me? Count the cost. Are you really willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Are you willing to give up everything? Now look at verses 31 and 33 through 33. Jesus gives us the second way we must count the cost. Can you afford to follow me? And then he says, can you afford to fight me? Can you afford to fight? Right? He gives us this, this story. There's an invading king that comes. He has 20,000 men. And he is attacking this king that only has 10,000 men. Seems pretty lopsided to me. The king that only has 10,000 men has to sit down and think about the loss that he's going to have. I'm going to lose property. I'm going to lose lives. I'm going to lose all of this stuff. Is he going to fight? Or is he going to surrender? Jesus is saying, are you going to fight me? Are you going to fight? Or are you going to surrender to him? Because I don't know if you know this or not. But in the end, Christ wins. Every single time. Christ wins the battle. We count the cost because the cost to not surrender is eternal. And if you already know Christ, the cost not to live for Christ could be your life. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? What I mean is sometimes as followers of Christ, we get to the point where we're no longer even living for Christ. And Christ says, time to come home. And the point's clear. We have to forsake all. We renounce and give up everything that we are and all that we have or else we cannot be his disciples. When we count the cost of following Christ, we need to think about what will this cost? And we get it stuck in our mind that Jesus only wants this percentage, right? He only wants part of me. He only wants 10% of me or he only wants 20% of me or he only wants 30% of me or he only wants 75% of me. No, he wants all of you. Count the cost. It will cost us all that 
darkness around Christ, it will cost you. It will cost you your heart. Total devotion and being committed to Jesus Christ. It will cost you your mind being controlled by Christ. It will cost you your eyes watching what we look at. It will cost you your ears watching what you listen to. It will cost you your hands watching what you touch and pick up. It will cost you your feet watching where you go. It will cost you your mouth watching what you eat, drink, and say. It will cost you your desires watching, controlling, and changing your urges and your desires to be obedient to Him. It will cost you your energy committing your strength your initiative, and everything you are to the will of Christ. It will cost you your effort and your work, dedicating and centering all that you have on Christ Jesus. Listen, our efforts and work will be costly for the cause of Christ. And it's at this point that many will be lost. Because they may be willing to say a prayer, but they're not willing to give up everything. They're not going to put Christ before their family, their friends, their cars, their money, their home, their investments. They won't put Christ first. Christ wants complete surrender. He wants all of it. One year I went to Haiti on a mission trip. I was sharing the gospel with the Haitians there. Me and some other guys were up in the mountains. Sharing the gospel in the mountains with the voodoo priests up there. And we're walking through the village and there's this man out there. And uh, we kind of stand out in Haiti. Rather lightly complected compared to them. So, pretty much everybody would talk to us. And so, I started up a conversation with this man. And I walked him through the, the gospel and what it meant. And I asked him, I said, Will you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? He says, Yeah, I'll do that. And so, my translator says, Okay, get down on your knees. They said, oh, I'm not going to do that. I said, no, get down on your knees. We're going we're gonna to pray over you. Get down, get down on your knees. No. And my well-meaning buddies back here, just lead him in the prayer. Just lead him in the prayer. That's our problem. Can't you understand that? translator looked at him and said, you're not willing to surrender to Christ. You won't even get on your knees for Jesus. And we walk on. Some of us have been fighting Jesus. Maybe you've been fighting all week long. Maybe you've been fighting him all year long. Maybe you've been fighting Jesus for years. You've come to church before. You've felt the weight of conviction on your life. And you fight it. <clears throat> Some of you perhaps don't even know Jesus. And you're, you're fighting Jesus over and over again. And he calls out to you and you say, no. Can you afford to fight him? Aren't you tired of fighting? Aren't you tired of fighting against Christ? And what he's trying to do in your life? Can you afford to fight? The final thing I want to share with you this morning is can you afford to fake it? Can you afford to fake it? Jesus says that salt, it's good. But if it loses its flavor, it's lost its taste. It's no longer salty. How can you restore the saltiness in salt? He says, it's of no use. Did you read that? It's of no use. 
Not it's of some use. And then he expands it even further. It's of no use for the soil or for the manure pile. We like to pretend like Jesus always says nice stuff, right? He says, if you lose the saltiness, you can't even throw it in the manure pile. I almost said a different word there. Somebody might think that was cursing. You can't throw it in the manure pile. He who has ears, let him hear. Three important things real quick. A half-hearted choice is a worthless choice. It doesn't season and it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't help anyone or anything. So, oh, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say a prayer and that's it. I'm done. That does nothing. It doesn't save you. It just means you said a prayer one day. It doesn't season or penetrate. Nothing happens. A second, second point, a half-hearted choice is to be cast out. Salt that is worthless and useless is cast out. Because why? Because it's not good for nothing. It's not good for the manure pile. It's not even good for the road. It's thrown away. It's not good. Thirdly, a person with ears needs to hear the invitation. You see, hearing spiritual truth is a choice which a person must make. And we choose whether we're going to hear the truth or we're going to reject the truth. This happens a lot, right? So, so we either decide, okay, I'm going to hear this biblical truth or I'm just going to say, no, I don't need that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. doesn't matter what the Bible tells me. I'm just going to do my own thing. I sat with a man a few days ago Lost it for over an hour, trying to tell me what this said. And I kept circling back to Jesus every single time. Over and over again. He didn't like that much. But throughout the conversation, he's brought it back to Jesus. Well, everybody's going to get to heaven, he said. So do you believe the Bible or not? Well, yeah. What well, doesn't tell us everybody's going to get to heaven? There has to be one truth. So what do you do when the one truth contradicts the other truth? He doesn't like. He didn't like using logic. Highly intelligent man, by the way. He chose whether he's going to hear the truth or not. Can you afford to fake it? Because we've gotten really good at faking it. I'm a Christian. Look at all this stuff I do. Doesn't make you a Christian. Can you afford to fake it? I close this morning by asking you whether or not you're listening. Have you counted the cost? Will you put Jesus above anybody or anything? Can you afford to follow Christ? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. Can you afford to fight him? I ask you today, are you a follower of Christ? Have you counted that cost? Are you committed to him? If not, I want you to know that today is a day of salvation. You can trust in Christ today. You can place your hope in him. So well, how do I do that? It's not about just saying a prayer. It's about you're committing your entire life to Jesus Christ. You're saying, I will die to self. And you can say a prayer to, to reinforce that commitment. And it's simple. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask for you to forgive me. I turn from my sins. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me.
I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not magic. Christ saves those who call out to him. And a prayer is simply you saying, Lord, my life is worthless. I need you. I need you to save me. I will give you everything and take what you have in return because it's so much better. If you said that prayer or you said something like it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward. If you're online, you can text the word faith to 309 328 3488. Or you can send a text message to that. If you don't have a smartphone, just send a text message to that number. Tradition tells us how some of the followers of Christ died, insulted by the enemies of their master. They were called to seal their doctrines with their blood, and nobly they bared the trial. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterwards banished to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross which he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance at a coromandel in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death in Salonica. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the Emperor Nero. No one said that following Christ would be easy. No one said that you would not bear your cross. Jesus says, come and die. So you might actually live. The lowest ebb in England's fortunes during World War II was a period following the evacuation of the shattered British army at Dunkirk. The Nazi hordes were poised, awaiting the order to cross the English Channel to invade a seemingly helpless nation. Largely armed with words alone, Winston Churchill rallied his people by offering them only this, blood, sweat, and tears. And history confirms that the people responded heroically to his challenge. Jesus never offered his people a bed of roses. Instead, he warns them to prepare. Be prepared. It's going to be dangerous. There's hardships. There's suffering. And there's even death. I only offer you blood, sweat, and tears. And they followed him. And rendered the service which they had been called to complete. Listen, believer, I don't have some grand story of how following Jesus makes your life easier or makes your life better. All I can tell you this morning is it's a fight, and it's blood, and it's sweat, and it's tears, and it will be a fight until the bitter end, and we can either engage in the fight, or we can give up, and we can quit, and we can allow the enemy to win. Are you committed to put Jesus above everything? To come and die to self. Count the cost. Can you afford to follow him? Can you afford to fight him? And can you afford to fake it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this magnificent passage of scripture that we find in Luke 14. where we read the words of Jesus.
who makes it clear. There's a commitment. There's a commitment to be made. Thank you. Thank you for his words, making it clear that this isn't just some half-hearted choice. But Jesus wants all of us. And Lord, I don't know where people are at today or whenever they hear this message. I pray that our hearts would be barren before you. That you would pierce the depths of our heart this morning. That we would sit and ask ourselves, have I really been committed to Christ and am I counting the cost? And Lord, we'd ask ourselves this morning, am I following? Am I fighting? Am I faking it? never promised us an easy road. But some of us this morning instead of fighting Satan, we're fighting you. And we've convinced ourselves that Satan's the enemy as we fight against you. Lord, give us the courage to reverse the role, to fight against what Satan's trying to do, and to fight him to the bitter end until we have nothing left in us. If you've spoken to us, I pray that we respond this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. And as we sing, you'll be willing to come.